The Centre for Professional Learning acknowledges and pays respect to traditional custodians and their ancestors across our broad country. We acknowledge the past, present and emerging elders on whose land we have been privileged to live and work. This podcast was produced on Gadigal land. We recognise First Nations people's continuing connection to lands, waters and culture around the world. This podcast was recorded in 2020 by the team from Trio Professional Learning, Jenny, Sandra and Mary Ellen, as part of a series of conversations between teachers about practical aspects of teaching in primary classrooms. Trio presented a variety of courses for the Centre for Professional Learning from 2013 to 2021. Following their retirement and to continue supporting New South Wales public school teachers, Trio made their series of podcasts available to the CPL. The documents mentioned in the podcasts are available on the CPL website. Welcome to TRIO Podcasts. In this episode of the Take 5 series, we're discussing poetry. Hello, my name's Mary Ellen Betts and this is Jenny Williams. I chose the topic for today's podcast and I've written it down as Teach Poetry. I've written it as a command because I think we should all be teaching poetry. And so I want to really reflect during today on the value of teaching poetry and why uh, we should be doing that. But let's start with a poem. And I like poems being read out aloud, so I'm going to read you a poem by um, a quite famous Instagram poet in Australia. His name is Bo Taplin. And this poem has four lines and seven words. Better an oops than a what if. Just think about it for a moment. Better an oops than a what if. I came across this poem in in an article on poets in the Good Weekend magazine of the Sunday paper. I was thrilled to bits to find poetry being discussed in the newspaper, in the weekend newspaper, and I think it says a lot about the part that poetry can play in our lives. When I think about poetry, the definition I use is the best words in the best order about something important. And when I look at that poem, What If?, I'm struck by the fact that it is four lines, seven words, but a very powerful message. A message that's relevant to me as a person, but equally relevant to the students I'm teaching in kindergarten or in year six. But it's so concise. There's so, uh, everything's been stripped away. The sentence structure, anything unnecessary has been stripped away. And to me, that's the essence of poetry and the fun of poetry. Often poems are short. They're not all short, but often they are short. Often there's a lot of white space around them because they don't go left to right across the line in the way that a prose passage does. And the white frame is not an accident, but really quite significant because it frames, that white space frames the compact language and the shorter lines that are often typical of poetry and I think make us focus in uh, on those very important key words. So for that reason, I think that the white space 
is a significant aspect or characteristic of poetry that we can talk to our students about. The other thing that I think is really interesting is where the line breaks occur. In this instance where we've got uh, four lines, we don't have a typical sentence format, um, even though there is a capital letter for the first word and a full stop after the what if. It, It resembles a sentence, but it can break the rules that we typically associate with a sentence. And that strips away anything that's unnecessary to the core message of the poet. So I guess that's a summary of why I want to say teach poetry and why I use the definition the best words in the best order about something important. Ah, Thanks. I really enjoyed listening to that. Can we hear that again just to really ponder that short listening for the white space because we can listen to the white space around (laughs) this and um, visualise the line breaks. Can you just give it to us again and we'll give the white space before and after? Yes, and I'd love to reference Bo Taplin, his poem What If. He is an Australian, he lives in Melbourne and he's um, he's written I think 13 books and is well known as an Instagram poet. Say that Instagram. Yes, he's an Instagram poet and he has um, over 600,000 followers. And this poem, titled What If, Better an Oops Than a What If. I could feel the white space around those words, Mary Ellen. That's magic, that's magic. Okay, we know you're passionate. We know you're passionate about poetry. Yes, I am. (laughs) So, okay, why should we be teaching it in our classrooms? I think there's a lot of reasons we should be teaching poetry. Uh, The first one probably is that it's actually in the syllabus. So it's part of what we're mandated as teachers to teach. There's a lot of references across every stage to elements of poetry, which we'll go on to discuss uh, later in this podcast. So because purely because it's in the syllabus, we've got to stop being frightened of it and just give it a go. But there are a whole lot of reasons why poetry should be included in what we're doing. I think the first one is that it's often in small manageable chunks of text that are quite easy to read. So even a less able reader in your class will be able to access the language in the poem and and join in a sophisticated conversation around the meaning of the poem. Uh, It's easier for a less able reader perhaps than a lot of denser text that we might be using and looking at as a class. It gets to the meaning, deep meaning quickly, doesn't it? It does get to the deep meaning quickly and they don't have to be frightened off by a a massive amount of decoding as they might be in a prose text. I, I think the other thing is that poetry exposes students to wonderful descriptive language that enables them to visualise what's being written about. Uh, the figurative language that's often associated with poetry helps us to create pictures in our mind. And so I think for that reason, students very quickly come to see how rich the English language is. And then there's a flow-on effect, I think, from hearing that rich language and new vocabulary, powerful vocabulary. And the flow-on effect is then using that and helping students to see how they can use that in their own writing. One other thing I like about poetry is that 
it's a tool that exposes readers and listeners to a range of emotions. And I think that helps to build empathy as we hear poets who may have a different point of view to ours or may have a similar point of view and we engage with them in their emotional experience as it is expressed through a poem. And the last reason, and I think perhaps for a lot of our primary students this might be the most important one, it's about having fun with language. And I think anything we do that shows our students that we can have fun with the English language is a really important aspect of the teaching of English. Um, You started the conversation by reading the text aloud so that we were we were listening to a text. Does that imply that we can use poetry as a spoken text in our classroom? I think we should be using a lot of poetry in our classroom, and one of the main reasons is it is a spoken text. I am a lover of poetry, if you haven't already guessed, but when I reflect back on my teaching career, I feel the, like oral poetry was a missed opportunity. I did a lot of poetry where we had the text in front of us, where we uh, might even have learnt the poem. We might have recited the poem for an assembly item. We certainly spent time unpacking the meaning in a poem. But poems really are written to be read out aloud. So hearing the poet, if if it's possible, reading their own poem or listening to someone else read it and just letting the language waft over you as a spoken text is very powerful. Even if you then go to looking at it as a print text, I think hearing it and understanding its power as a spoken text is really important aspect of poetry. Um, there are lots of tapes of poets reading their own works. I'm, I'm thinking of a poem called The Dentist and the Crocodile <laughs> by Roald Dahl and there's an old crackly um, YouTube clip of Roald Dahl reading that poem. Now, he wrote it, and so he's reading it with the nuances of exactly how he wrote it to be read. Uh, It's a classic poem, a funny poem, and hearing him read it is really lovely. Um, I'm also thinking about Jack Thompson, and he reads a lot of Australian bush ballads. And actually, I can't hear The Man from Snowy River or Mulga Bill's Bicycle without hearing his voice relating those wonderful bush ballads. And there's a lovely quality, there's a lovely Australian bushman quality to his voice that really brings those poems alive. So yes, I do think that poetry should be read aloud and we should first consider it as a spoken text. One of the aspects that uh, really is important in that hearing it as a spoken text is Um, discovering the sounds of language that are so much a part of poetry. I'm thinking in particular here of rhythm, of rhyme, um, of alliteration and onomatopoeia, and they are features of poetry that relate to the sounds of words. Let's just unpack for a moment a couple of those uh, key elements. I'm glad you're going to repeat those. Uh, let's Let's think about what they might mean. I'm going to start with rhythm. Uh, because rhythm is an element of all poetry. There are certainly some traditional poems that would have a very uh, strong, set-out, dictated pattern of rhythm. For instance, um, all of Shakespeare's sonnets are written in iambic pentameter, 
and that's a particular language pattern. But whether it's free verse, whether it's a bush ballad, whatever it is you're reading, it may be the rhythm of natural speech. Um, it may be the rhythm that comes uh, from a particular person speaking the words in a particular order, the way in which the poet is encouraging you to articulate the lines. But rhythm is an element of every poem that we read. And rhythm comes from the pattern of stressed and unstressed syllables. And so all that hard work we do in the early years of schooling around teaching students about chunks of words in particular syllables really comes into its own when students are looking at uh, poetry and looking at how rhythm is made. And it's simply that patterning of stressed and unstressed syllables. Is this where you would normally tell me about um, The Highwayman? I love The Highwayman. That's a, a definitely a, a classic poem. And The Highwayman uh, starts off, uh, the first lines are, the road was a ribbon of moonlight. Beautiful language. But the rhythm of the poem replicates the horse's hooves as the outlaw is riding down the road in the night towards his girlfriend in the um, hotel. And so that the very deliberate construction of the rhythm is to mimic the highwayman who's coming riding, and that line is repeated. The highwayman came riding, riding, riding up to the old inn door, and it's the pattern of the horse's hooves of the galloping rider that's replicated in that uh, very long ballad poem. Oh, so you're not going to recite the whole thing from memory Unfortunately, now? I can't <laughs> recite the whole thing from memory, but it's well worth looking out and having a look for. So we've talked about rhythm and about how rhythm might be just the speech pattern or in traditional poems there might be a more regulated named meter is the term that's used for rhythm. But another aspect of the uh, sounds of language that we hear in poetry is rhyme. Now, a poem doesn't have to rhyme. There will always be a rhythm in a poem, but some poems have a rhyming pattern as well. And a rhyming pattern is simply where word endings sound the same. And we typically find the rhyme at the end of the line, although sometimes there will be rhyming patterns that occur in other places in the line. Um, and so with rhyme, um, there's just a convention of naming rhyme by looking at the first uh, line that has a word that rhymes. We give that line a, the title A, the first letter of the alphabet, and any subsequent line that has the same rhyming pattern is also called A. And so you can find patterns of rhyme. It might be a rhyming couplet where, where two lines, two subsequent lines rhyme. It, you might find as in a uh, limerick that there are two rhyming patterns, lines one, two and five rhyme and lines three and four are a different rhyme. So rhyme can be used in a variety of ways within a poem. It's one of the clever things, I think, that distinguishes poetry uh, from prose, but it's not an essential element of every poem. I love to get young readers especially to explore the rhyme in poems because it's really part of understanding how words work and beginning readers especially need to get very proficient at that. 
and uh, thinking about learning words by analogy, well, doesn't poetry provide a wonderful opportunity to do that? I'm thinking there about um, playground chants, nursery rhymes, simple things like that that really give a lot of opportunity for understanding rhyming pattern. And I like to do it by cutting the poem up into its individual lines, giving students some coloured counters and getting them to set out visually using the counters the rhyming pattern that they can hear through the words at the end of each line. I think that helps students very quickly make a connection between the rhyme they're hearing and the pattern that's being made, uh, which they can see through the visual of the counters on the on the uh, floor beside their sentence strips of the poem. So rhyme and rhythm are both key elements of the sound of poetry, but there are others as well that it's worth introducing students to. You, you, I'm sure, are familiar with the term alliteration. Oh, can I quote the dappled dawn drawn falcon from high school days? Well, there you go. Um, and a lot of tongue twisters use alliteration, which is just a repeated uh, consonant sound at the beginning of a list of words. And uh, great to get kids to write tongue twisters and uh, encourage them to have some fun with that language. Mary Ellen, uh, you and I have often used in a DEM lesson or with teachers the idea of writing a poem that is um, an adjective, noun, verb, adverb about a particular animal, all starting with the same letter, like slimy slimy snails slide silently would be a classic example, which is just a simple descriptive poem but using that feature of alliteration. When it's not the consonants that are repeated but the vowel sounds that are repeated, it's given a different name and that's assonance. That's less common perhaps, uh, but certainly alliteration is a sound device that we see frequently in poetry. Interestingly enough, it's also a sound device we see a lot in persuasive text. The first thing that comes to my mind is the Cancer Council's um, slip, slop, slap, Slide. Seek and slide. Oh, I've gotten the last two there, Mary Ellen. But that uh, alliteration's been used there to help us to remember um, and rem- uh, as a strong reminder to make sure that we're doing the slip, slop, slap, seek, slide uh, each time we go out into the sun. So it's nice to introduce uh, alliteration to students as an element of poetry and then to show how effectively it can be used in persuasive texts as well to emphasise a particular point or as a strong reminder to readers about what they need to do. One other um, idea that I think is particularly important in terms of sound devices is onomatopoeia. And I think all teachers have a lot of fun with this, and that's where the word resembles the sound that it makes. And it helps to convey not just meaning, but certainly an atmosphere as well. So the words that come to mind when I think of onomatopoeia are boom, buzz, crackle, gurgle, pop. They're words that um, sound like the action that they represent. And so encouraging students to have some fun with onomatopoeic words I think can be um, a great way of encouraging a love of language. Okay, you've just 
talked about the sounds of the language. What what about figurative language? Where does what does that fit? What you know, what do we need to know about figurative language? Well, figurative language is interesting. It's the term that's used in our syllabus and it really applies to any words that are used in a way that's not directly literal. So we might be using words creatively. So the most typical examples of figurative language that we tend to talk about with students in primary school are similes, metaphors and personification. And we're encouraging students to use that figurative language uh, in their prose as well as finding it in poetry and identifying it in poetry and using it if they're writing a poem as well. Um, So let's just unpack each of those. What is a simile? Well, a simile is where you're comparing two things, but you're using the terminology like or as. So an example might be, she sang like a bird. So she was singing in a way that made you think of a bird. There's a comparison being made between the person and the singing. And the singing, I'm assuming, was uh, beautiful, like a songbird rather than like uh, the cackle of a kookaburra. So she sang like a bird is a comparison. And that's a simile because it uses the words like or as to introduce the comparison. When we use a metaphor, we're doing the same thing, but we're saying that one thing is the other thing, not just drawing a comparison, but saying that something is something else. Um, And so when we say that, when I, you said before, Mary Ellen, you referred to one of my favourite poems, The Highwayman, and when we say the road was a ribbon of moonlight. So that's a lovely, a beautiful metaphor that's saying not just that the road is like a ribbon of moonlight, but the road is a ribbon of moonlight. And what a lovely picture that creates. A nice way to explore metaphors or similes is to get students to draw Uh, what they think it represents and to get that sense of the road because of the moonlight on it is like a ribbon disappearing into the distance. So that sense of a visual picture, of creating a visual picture through a powerful comparison made in language. And metaphors really are a huge part of poetry, creating that picture through a simile or a metaphor, creating a visual picture using words. Um, sometimes poets have an extended meta- use an extended metaphor, so the whole poem is a metaphor. And I'm thinking here um, in particular about some poems I know about fog. Interesting, you could do a whole unit just looking at poems about fog. It seems to be something that's attracted a lot of writers to write about. But I'm thinking of a very short little poem called Fog, where the fog creeping around the town down by the sea is described right through the two stanzas of the poem as though it is a cat. Uh, Its haunches, the fog on its haunches creeping around. So you get a sense of the fog being a cat. And therefore, if you know how a cat moves, you've got a sense then, even if you don't know a lot about fog, you've got a sense of how the fog moves and you can draw that comparison, even if it's about something you're unfamiliar with, perhaps like fog. The other figurative language that we see a lot is personification. And personification is just where uh, human attributes are um, given to something that is non-human. 
And so a nice example of that might be to say um, the hen said to the fox, well, the hen's not really talking to the fox, but uh, we're, we're, we're getting that hen given um, the, the characteristic of a human. The trees sighed and moaned in the wind. Well, sighing and moaning is something that humans do, and here that quality is being attributed to the trees and the wind rustling through the trees. So personification is a type of metaphor, and it's just where human characteristics are given to something that would typically not be human. So can I just say, I mean, this you're talking about using the language to talk about you know, poetry, but you're going beyond just saying this is a simile. In terms of the conversations you're having with kids, it's going way beyond the, you know, find three similes. Yes. Okay. What I want them, I guess what I want them to see is the magic of language. I want them to have a sense of uh, the beauty of the English language and the pictures that it can create. That's why I often use drawing um, as I'm talking to students about similes and metaphors. Yes, I want them to be able to identify them but far more than identifying them and ticking off, great, I can identify three similes, is understanding the comparison that's being made and thinking about what drew the poet to make that comparison. Why did the poet looking at the fog think it was like a cat? And what is there about a cat that makes us think the fog is moving in a similar way? And so I think it's the magic of creating a picture often around something we're less familiar with by using the example of something we are familiar with. I know how a cat moves. I don't know a lot about fog, but I can get a picture in my mind of what the fog might be like by that comparison that's being made in the metaphor where the fog is described as a cat. And so I think that's the magic of poetry. But there's also a lot of fun to be had. Uh, there's so much fun to be had through the English language, and I think sometimes we forget this. It's just as valid to be looking at limericks and tongue twisters and playground chants as it is to be looking at classical poetry. And I think a starting point is always what your students are interested in. And the moment those clapping games start up in the playground, that's the time to be bringing them into the classroom and using them as your text, and unpacking how they work, getting the students to perform them with the clapping rhythms, having fun with them as a class, and seeing what, um, what elements of language are being used, the sounds of language, the beauty of the language, the fun of language, how they're being brought together in playground chants, in riddles, in limericks, um, in tongue twisters, in songs. Uh, all of those perfectly valid ways to be considering the features of poetry. There's a couple that I haven't really uh, drawn attention to in terms of uh, perhaps not figurative language, but the fun of language. Um, and, and there's some things where we're doing a lot of play around words. And I'm thinking here about puns, where you've got the double meaning of a variety of words. Um, and a, 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 an example that comes to mind is and an elephant's opinion carries a lot of weight. And so I'm thinking about, you know, the heavy elephant and his opinion 
being worth listening to, carrying weight, a different kind of weight. I'm also thinking of spoonerisms, and I'm sure, Mary Ellen, you, like me, have known somebody who really had the gift for um, mixing up the initial sounds in a pair of words. Um, a Instead of a crushing blow, a blushing crow. And while I don't think I have the gift for this, I have been in conversations with people who can do it again and again and again um, in a really funny way. So pointing out to students spoonerisms and puns and nonsense words um, is a great way to really show that the language is very alive and we don't have to be serious and sensible all the time with how words work. Um, when I think of nonsense words, the classic that always comes to mind, and I would certainly do with students, is um, the Jabberwocky by oh, Lewis Carroll. It was brillig and all the slimy toes did gyre and gimble. <laughs> yes, that's the one. And what I like about that is it's complete nonsense, but you can do some wonderful comprehension questions with it because it's all in grammatical sentences and students know where the nouns are and where the verbs are. And even though none of the words make sense, you can have a bit of fun asking uh, comprehension questions around that and, and exposing them to the madness of language because we can all answer them correctly, even though we've got no idea what a what a gimbal is and what a tove might be, might look like. You only come unstuck if you have to draw them. Yes, exactly. But how interesting to see... Uh, from reading the poem, what people think um, each of those creatures might be and what they might be doing as they gyve and gimble. Um, so a bit of fun to be had there. So I can I just say what you're talking about is very different to what many of us experienced in our own backgrounds about poetry, which I think brings a reluctance to, um, to, to teaching poetry. So you've yeah, when you described poetry, you said it was about something important. Well, Why have you said that? <laughs> I think sometimes it is about something earth-shattering, some uh, significant message that we want people to take away from the poem. But sometimes the message is just language is fun ah. and let's just experiment with it and have some fun. Um there's a couple of other things I wanted to say there, Mary Ellen, about um, word play. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of the riddles that are in um, Christmas crackers, which we all like raise uh. our eyes about the stupidity of them where the, the children of the family will be rolling around thinking how hysterically funny they are. And I think that's it's, it's great to show students that we can play with words and it's great to introduce poetry through riddles, through limericks, through tongue twisters and through songs because they have a relevance to students and they can roll around and have a bit of a laugh and think, gee, you know, poetry is not just traditional dead poems. There's a lot of elements to poetry that can be fun. It's a perfectly valid way and a great way to engage students and uh, show them how much fun there is to be had with language. You said songs. Definitely. Uh, songs, in a way, are poems that have been set to music and so finding what your students are listening to, making sure it's acceptable within a classroom setting. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, is a, would Preview be the first thing. Carefully. Like everything, read the text or listen to the song or the poem before you use it in your classroom. But I think um, bringing in to the classroom 
what students are singing in the playground, uh, the chance they are doing clapping games too across the playground, uh, shows them that poetry is alive and well and relevant. And I think that's really and a really important um, aspect of the teaching of poetry and of helping students to understand the magic of language. Um, one of the things I haven't mentioned, Muriel, and I'm just going to mention it because it's a bit out there, in terms of wordplay, neologisms. Um, okay, say that again. <laughs> do I have to? <laughs> um, I'm not even sure that I pronounce it correctly, but I do like it, neologisms. And they're newly coined words that may be, um, they're part of everyday English, but they may not yet be part of formal English. And they come out of our everyday experiences. So the word glamping, uh, where glamorous and camping have been put together to give us a new word, glamping. And the word spam, which we use to describe the rubbish that ends up in our in-tray. It used to be a type of tinned Tinned meat. Uh, and now it's got a new life altogether in this terminology. But words come into existence all the time. Um, and so I think that, uh, for instance, when we talk about um, isolation and distancing, social distancing are words that have come into our vocabulary in 2020. And so words, it's, the language is not a static thing that never changes. Words change, language changes. Families often have their own um, phrases or terminology that only makes sense or causes everybody to laugh within the family setting because they have a particular meaning within that family. They were once said by somebody and now they're repeated um, by the family on a variety of different occasions. I think anything that helps students to see that language is real, language is fun, you can have fun with language, are all important aspects of teaching them about how we use language and some of those language features that we so typically find in um, poetry. So that's magic. It is magic, and that's why I love poetry. (laughs) Okay. Um, Something important. Best order about something important you said right at the beginning. Yeah, I. there's a lot of value to be had in poetry purely through Uh, what we do with any text, unpacking the author's message. And so comprehending a poem, using it for that purpose, to unpack the meaning, to reflect on what the poet is trying to say to us, whether we agree with the the poet's thoughts or whether we disagree, um, having an opinion about what is being stated, I think are important aspects of any text that we study and can be so easily done in poems, even quite complex poems, because um, poetry is usually shorter in length than a whole novel, and because of that can be more easily accessible to our less able students, students to actually decode and read, which means we can spend the time focusing on what the message might be and looking between the lines to get not just a literal meaning but an inferential meaning, and then to think about uh, the message that's being portrayed. I think for this reason it's very valuable to use poetry as part of guided reading. Um, We should be moving away from um, levelled texts as quickly as we can, even in K-2, and certainly by Stage 3, 
uh, thinking about using a variety of real texts. And poetry lends itself beautifully as a tool in guided reading. Whatever unit uh, of English that I'm planning, I always try to include at least one poem. Um, And I like to do that because um, then I'm showing that poetry is relevant. Um, I subscribe to the Australian Children's Poetry website and because I've got a subscription with them, which is free, a poem drops into my email every couple of days. And often they're very current about things that are happening right now in the world. And so I can use them in my classroom almost instantly because of their relevance. Um, I love a book of poems by Lorraine Marwood called A Year in Poetry which has a poem about the Athletics Carnival, a poem about birthdays, a poem about World Peace Day, a poem about Ocean Day, so that I can be including poetry and making it relevant for a vast number of occasions across the year. Um, And using them in that way, I think, makes poetry real and makes it relevant. I'll just come back to the uh, using it as comprehension One of my favourite poets is um, um, Maya Angelou and she's an American poet and uh, with a particular sort of um, way of writing that I I love. And some of her poems, uh, for instance, The Caged Bird, are quite complex uh, but a great activity for students as a group to engage in a discussion about the elements we can see, we can talk about the language features, we can talk about the sound features, we can talk about the repetition of the chorus uh, between different stanzas of the poem. But the actual message uh, is one that's relevant to any audience. And so taking the time to unpack that, I think, helps students to see how to um, infer meaning and how to understand what the writer's purpose might be on a text that even a comp- it is a complex poem, but it's one page of text rather than having to read a whole novel and unpack that, which for our less able readers can be challenging because of the decoding, whereas often they can engage in that rich discussion around a text. And so poetry is the ideal opportunity for everyone in the class to be able to participate in understanding and unpacking and analysing a text, all key elements of what we're trying to do in English. Uh, I'm After your recommendation, I've actually used Maya Angelou's Cage Bird with a group of students in a DEM lesson, mm. all, always fraught. But to see how quickly students were able to get into a very deep conversation, uh, which just blew all our little minds. Mm. Mm. in a very short space of time with very few words. Yes, exactly. Uh, so very powerful. And very powerful. I certainly recommend exploring poems. If poetry is very easy to access now. Use Google and find poem, you know, for whatever the uh, unit you're designing. It's around resilience. Google poems for student, students around resilience and you'll find it's very easy to access poems. Start with something you feel you understand but I guess I'm coming back to my title, teach poetry, and it's really start, choose a poem and give it a go. Talk about some of the elements we've talked about in our Take 5 today, and I'm sure 
uh, that you will feel some success and satisfaction in using a poem as a text. Um, I also really like the idea of using, bringing a poem into every unit, not just sort of saying I'm only going to deal with poetry in the second half of Term 3 when it becomes bigger than Ben-Hur. So what you've talked about is really bringing it into the everyday conversation. It's just another type of text that we're looking at Mm. or another mode, another Mm. form. Um, So what what were the big takeaways from this, Jennifer? Well, I think the big takeaways are, first of all, uh, think about poetry as the best words in the best order about something important. I think uh, reflect on the reasons to teach poetry, discover the sounds of poetry, discover the magic of language through poetry, and uncover the message. We've only talked today about those five aspects in terms of being a reader of poetry. Perhaps we'll have to talk again about taking what we've learned in reading and responding to poetry into the composing of poems and the writing of poems. Perhaps that's a time, a discussion for another day, Mary Ellen. That certainly is. Today we've been talking about poetry. Um, Thank you for leading us through that conversation, Jenny, and uh, we look forward to talking together again. Thank you. Thank you.